0: We turn our attention now to God's Word. If you would, in your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, and that to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, we'll take a brief detour today from our regular study of Luke's Gospel, and given that we have a baptism service later this evening, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to help us understand what exactly is a sacrament, namely baptism in the Lord's Supper. And why they're so essential to our spiritual livelihood. Uh, We'll be jumping around different passages throughout the Bible, but I want to begin in Genesis chapter 17. And our focus will be on verses 10 through 11. But just by way of context, let me read for us beginning in verse 4. This is what God's word says. God speaking to Abraham, whose name was Abram at the time. Behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. verse 10 this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you every male among you shall be circumcised you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you amen let's pray together father in heaven what your servant Moses asked of you on Mount Sinai. That is our heartfelt request this morning. Please show us your glory. and so help us by your spirit to see your glory through the gospel of the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I just mentioned earlier, Jesus ordained two sacraments for his church: baptism and the Lord's Supper, also called communion. And sacraments, these sacraments are also called ordinances, which is a general term to say that these two are what Jesus ordained for his church to do. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commanded his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout the Gospels, and also reiterated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, jesus instituted the lord's supper for his disciples in the upper room hours before him being betrayed and delivered over uh, to be crucified but he didn't institute it just to be a one-time occasion but he commanded them do this in remembrance of me continually regularly and so here we have these two sacraments and clearly they are really important given that Jesus authoritatively ordained these two things for his church to observe for all generations until his return. But the fact of the matter is that the sacraments are probably the most misunderstood or even the most neglected teachings of Scripture. Uh, If we're honest, I think some of us may feel that all this seems just kind of like a rote exercise We have to do it, yes, because he said to do it, and that's about it. But we don't really understand why. But I want to show you from Scripture why the sacraments are not just some arbitrary commands from God, but they are the most precious gifts by which he intends to seal the truth of the gospel onto our minds and hearts. Because that's our very lifeblood as Christians to be held together by the clarity and the certainty of the gospel. You see, a sacrament by definition is a visible sign and seal of the gospel. It's a sign because it's an outward symbol of something. It's a visible representation that points to something, a picture that communicates a message. And it's a seal because because it's a confirmation of the certainty of what God has promised. It's the signature on a check, if you will. It's a guarantee of what's been written on the promissory note. That's what seal means. It's been signed. It's a signature. You can take the thing to the bank. And, And we see this very clearly in the sacrament of the Old Testament, as we see in Genesis chapter 17. That is when God instituted circumcision. Now remember, The the context of what's happening here in Genesis 17 is that God made a promise to Abraham out of nowhere. Okay, It's not because God didn't make this promise to Abraham because Abraham was such a fantastic fellow. It's not because Abraham had obeyed God so well and perfectly all his life, so God was now rewarding him. No, Abraham was actually a pagan. He, had, he grew up in Babylon and he served other gods, as Joshua 24.2 tells us. And so to this pagan, God appears out of nowhere. The one true God to this pagan worshiper, he reveals himself to Abraham out of nowhere and promises to bless him and bless the entire world through him. That was in Genesis chapter 12. God made a promise to funnel his entire redemptive plan through Abraham and his family, through his lineage. I mean, that is nothing but the sheer grace of God. Unexplainable, unmerited. It is God's inexplicable kindness out of nowhere to bless an undeserving sinner. That's what grace is. And here in Genesis chapter 17... God reaffirms that covenant that he had already made with Abraham. He says, behold, my covenant is with you. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring, so on and so forth, as we just read. And then what does God do? He gives to Abraham what he calls the sign of the covenant in verse 11, which was circumcision. It's not that circumcision was the command that Abraham had to obey in order to receive God's blessing. No, God already blessed him and promised it uh, back in chapter 12. But circumcision was the visible and tangible signature given to Abraham to ensure that God would stay faithful to his promise. And we might think, well, it's a little too tangible, but actually that's the point. That it was this permanent mark that he and his male descendants would bear their entire lives. And if you're wondering what circumcision has to do with anything, it's because it's the it's the man's bodily instrument of procreation. The the anatomical part by which he brings forth offspring. It would be this very part of his body that would bear the mark of the sign because the nature of God's promise had to do with the future offspring. And so it was God's way of reaffirming his promise that no matter what, no matter what happens, I will be faithful to follow through on my words to bless you and your offspring. And through your offspring, the entire world will be blessed. And of course, we know on this side of the cross that the ultimate offspring of Abraham is our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God sent in the fullness of time, born of a woman to redeem sinners. And that it's in Christ we see that God really did stay faithful throughout the ages. But you see that the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament was the visible pledge of God's covenant promise and the assurance that he would follow through. That's what a sacrament is. In fact, that's what the word means. The word sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentum, which means pledge. It's God's pledge or signature of his promise so as to seal his words with eternal guarantee. Hence, Romans 4.11 says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. And so this was God's sacrament in the Old Testament, a visible sign and seal of his promise. Now, how do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament signify and depict the gospel? Why did God give us these two? And that's an important question to ask because actually a lot of our confusion or our misunderstanding or our lack of enthusiasm is because we don't think about these two sacraments together. Now often they're, they're very isolated from each other in our minds. And so they seem to us as very disconnected things. And thus they lose their meaning and their power. But we must understand that these two sacraments come together together to portray a complete picture of the gospel for the assurance of believers and their life in Christ. They are interconnected, interrelated signs to seal God's promise, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Because you see, baptism signifies one's entrance into the covenant. Whereas the Lord's Supper signifies the renewal of the covenant. Baptism represents the entrance into the covenant, and the Lord's Supper represents the ongoing renewal of the covenant. And the reason why God sealed His gospel promise with these two sacraments was to imprint in our minds the power and the sufficiency of His grace, to not only save us from our sin, but to sustain us to the end. The, the sacraments testify of God's enduring faithfulness in salvation from beginning to end, so that by partaking in them, we might grow in the spiritual habit of looking away from ourselves and resting our eyes on His faithfulness and His sufficiency. Now, let's consider how, how exactly the two relate to each other. And of course, we have to begin with the sacrament that signifies the beginning or the spiritual birth of a believer That is, baptism. Baptism is the visible sign of the believer entering into the covenant, into the covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we know this because if you look in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Paul makes the analogy that just as circumcision was a sacrament of the Old Testament, so baptism, by analogy, is, is the sacrament in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, in order to enter into the covenant community of Israel, every male had to be circumcised at birth. And even a non-Israelite, a foreigner who converted and wanted to worship the true God of Israel and be a part of the assembly of Israel, whereby God would be their God and they would be his people, if a foreigner wanted to enter into the covenant, he had to undergo circumcision, which is what you see later in Genesis chapter 17. And so it was to signify that this individual had put his faith in the promises of God to Abraham and he had identified himself with Abraham's God as the one true God. And so in the same way, baptism is a sacrament that visibly depicts the believer entering into the new covenant in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Well, how does, you might ask, how does baptism portray entering into the covenant. Well, Paul explains for us in Romans chapter 6, from verse 3, just let me uh, paraphrase it for you, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Jesus, were baptized into His death, and we were buried with Him by baptism into His death, and we were raised with Him and united with Him in His death and resurrection. You see, this is critical to understand. That salvation is not just Jesus forgiving the sinner from a distance. But salvation is the sinner being united to Jesus by faith. That when a sinner realizes and confesses his sinfulness to God and believes in Jesus as his only hope of salvation and the forgiveness of sin, the believer is made one with jesus that's what the waters of baptism signify that as the believer goes down into the water he is showing that he has joined with jesus in his death in his death hence going down under water as a picture of going down to, to death being buried underground and as the believer comes back up from the water he is declaring that he has joined with christ In his resurrection, rising to new life in Jesus who rose from the dead. The point is that he is connected with Jesus, united to him. That's that's what's at the heart of the gospel of our salvation. And listen, it's because the believer is united to Jesus. That's why there is the full forgiveness of sins. You follow? It's, it's because the believer is one with Christ that's why there is forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus fully paid for sins at the cost of his life. And he suffered the hell of God's eternal and infinite wrath on the cross. And so as believers united to Jesus, it's as if we paid for it, even though we weren't the ones who suffered on the cross. Because if we are one with Jesus, then all that He did is credited to us as if we did it. All that Jesus did, His his perfect obedience, His complete payment of sin, it's all credited to us such that there's no more judgment left for us. Justice has been satisfied. And all that we did, namely our sin and the condemnation and punishment that it demands, was required of him the guilt was laid upon him as if he did it because jesus united himself with us and that's why he suffered god's anger on the cross because he was bearing our sin union with christ means this all that is his is mine and all that is mine is his this is salvation This is the good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners, not just by waving some magic wand, but by uniting them with his Son. There is no forgiveness outside of Jesus. There is no blessing and salvation apart from Jesus. There is no blessing and salvation even nearby Jesus, even in close proximity to Jesus. But it is all found in Jesus, in Christ alone. Listen, if you're here and you're not in Jesus, you need to come to Him, confess your sin, and enter into Him by faith. He is your hope and salvation and life. And He has come to take sinners unto Himself. It it, it pleases Him to save sinners. It pleases Him to unite Himself to, to filthy sinners like us, that He might cleanse us, and that He might rule over us in His perfect and loving authority. You see, that's what's so amazing about the gospel that anyone can come to jesus and enter into union with him to be called his very own now christian think about this if this is what salvation is that by faith you have been united to to christ Even if you didn't understand when you got saved, you had no idea. Well, that's the joy of the Christian life that you grow in deeper and deeper understanding of the gospel and salvation. But that when you profess faith in Christ, that this is is what happened, that you were united to Christ. That God has joined you with Jesus in holy matrimony. And think about the glorious implications of it all. You are, and you have been, inseparably bound to Christ forever. That's what God has done. And nothing can change that. On your best day as a Christian, and equally on your worst day as a Christian, that doesn't change. The the love of God in Jesus Christ is utterly unchanging and sealed unto eternity. And to presume that that would ever change, it would be to blaspheme God's own triune nature. Because it would be to say that the Father's love for His Son would ever change. You see, the love of God in Christ Jesus for us, because we are in Christ, it doesn't change. Because the basis of our covenant relationship with God is in Christ alone in his merits, in his righteousness, his sufficiency, his works, his obedience. Because again, you're one with him. I mean, do you get that? That when Jesus saved you, what he did was declare at the altar, all that I am, I give to you. And all that is mine, I share with you. All of my righteousness is yours because we have been made one. All of my merits, my sinless, perfect obedience that God demands for for full acceptance and full pleasure, it's yours because I am yours and you are mine. That's what baptism is signifying. It's like a wedding ring. The wedding ring doesn't make you married, just as baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but the wedding ring is a visible sign of your marital status that you've entered into marital union with your spouse. And so in the same way, baptism is a visible sign of your spiritual status, that you've entered into spiritual and eternal and real union with Christ. And what God has joined together, no one can separate. And that no one includes you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This union is what baptism is signifying. I mean, my goodness, this is so good. I don't think we need another sacrament. I mean, this one practically covers all the bases. And I mean, it's true in a sense. Baptism is such a powerful sacrament because it captures so richly the full essence of salvation in Christ. And so why then, we would ask, why did God ordain the Lord's Supper? Why did He institute another sacrament? Because... He knows our frame because he knows that our greatest struggle as believers is the struggle of unbelief. This gospel of union with Christ, which we have believed by faith and been saved by his grace. Our daily struggle as believers is to wrestle with this thought, even in the subtlest of ways, But can it really be true? I mean, can can the gospel really be that good though? That free? That unconditional? That unchanging? No. His promise is too good to be true. I mean, look, even Abraham struggled with the same thing, didn't he? Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He is the paragon of saving faith. The the guy that Paul bases his entire argument of the doctrine of of justification by faith alone in Romans chapter 4. That Abraham, the father of faith, he struggled hard with unbelief. And he even fell into unbelief. Because remember in Genesis chapter 12, when God first showed, showed up to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and you will bear a child and through, the, through your offspring, I'll bless the whole world. Abraham was 75 years old at the time and Sarah was quite similar. And I mean, that was, that was kind of unlikely. Oh uh, my goodness, I'm an old man. But he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But guess what happened? Years went by. And nothing happened. 11 years went by. He was 86 years old in Genesis chapter 16. When Sarah, his wife, said to him, you know, I don't think that promise is coming through. I'm barren. They had no children when God first made that promise to Abraham. And Sarah said to Abraham, hey, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe God... Got some details mixed up. I and mean, we still kind of believe in part that, that there's a promise, you know, through all that. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's through me. So here, here's my servant Hagar. Why don't you go into her and you have an offspring with her through the work and effort of human flesh? Because she is not barren. And so Abraham, it wasn't just his wife. He said, you know, what, that's a good idea. Yeah, you know, what, you're right. I don't know if I really believe. Yeah, it's, it's been 11 years. That's kind of a long time. Let's give this a shot, just to cover our bases, just in case there was some miscommunication somewhere. And so Ishmael was born in Genesis chapter 16. And perhaps they thought, oh, hooray, hey, we we made it, we did it. And 13 years went by when Ishmael was 11, or 13, rather. And in Genesis chapter 17, 99 years old, they still didn't have a child through Sarah, God appeared to Abraham and said, hey Abraham, Ishmael's not the guy. That's a child of the flesh, of human effort. No, Sarah will bear a son for you. And it is through her, through this barren woman, simply by the power of my promise. That will be the child to carry on the covenant. And in Genesis chapter 21, finally, Isaac was born through Sarah when Abraham was 100 years old. But you see, Abraham doubted God, doubted God's promise. Can it really be true? I mean, Paul even says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham and Sarah, they were so old. And, and, and Sarah was so barren. There, Abraham was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was as good as dead. What a nice way to talk about a woman's age. Abraham struggled and even fell into unbelief. You see, unbelief is the struggle of every believer. Every Christian, our greatest battle is to believe that the gospel, that God's promise, is as good and as true and as all-sufficient as He says it is. And why does that happen? Why do we doubt? Because we look at ourselves. And as believers we're confronted still with our own sinfulness, the residue of sin that remains. And as we look at our sinful selves, we start to think there is no way that even so I could still be so perfectly and purely loved by God. There is just no way. Has God seen me? Doesn't he see how weak I am? How much I stumble and fall short of godliness? And the answer is, oh, yes. He sees you. He knows all about you. More than you know yourself. More than you see yourself. But that's why the gospel is such good news. That in Christ, he doesn't base his love for you on you and your striving. Even now as a Christian. What kind of a wonderful Christian you might be. But that his love for you is entirely based on Christ and his finished work. That doesn't change. And so neither will his love and perfect pleasure over you. And so the real question is not, has God seen me? But the question we need to ask is, if I am in Christ and I am in Christ, what does God see in me? Or rather, whom does God see in me? And the gospel answer is this, that he sees Christ in you, that he sees you clothed with his perfect righteousness because you are one with him. But this gospel truth, we forget and we stray from it because we struggle to believe it. And unwittingly, we start to revert back to, into a mindset as though we were under the law and not under grace as we actually are. And that's why we fall into sin as believers. Because although we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we, we sometimes still think and behave as though we are naked and ashamed. And so we feel the need to hide ourselves from Him. And and that only when we cover ourselves up adequately and sufficiently, then perhaps we may draw near to God. But until then, we distance ourselves from Him, hiding from His presence. And when our hearts are far from Him, it can only lead us to stumble and fall more into sin. Because away from the gracious presence of His holy light, to which we belong rightfully, we find ourselves wading through the darkness or we can only stumble and fall. You see, this is the root struggle of every believer. And I say this all the time. I've said it to many of you that every counseling issue, every spiritual struggle for the believer, it always comes down to this one thing, which is the assurance of our salvation, the certainty of the gospel to believe that it really is that good and that true. And beloved, Jesus knows our every weakness. And that's why he gave to his precious church the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as a visible sign of the renewal of his covenant. Baptism is a one-time visible sign because it signifies the entrance, the inauguration of your union with Christ. But the Lord's Supper is an ongoing visible sign as Jesus told his disciples in the, in the upper room do this in remembrance of me it's an ongoing renewal not because whenever we take communion jesus is being crucified over and over again and we're extracting some spiritual points from him as the roman catholic church teaches which is heresy but that jesus is reaffirming and reassuring his sealed promise over and over again pointing us to his once for all finished work for us and it's his most loving intent to remind us that his grace is still sufficient for us, even in the darkest of our hours. See, this is at the heart of sanctification. It's, it's to be renewed in your mind, as Romans twelve two says. To remember the gospel that we're so prone to forget. To be reminded of who we are in Christ, united to him. That he is never far from us, but that he is in us. Because we are in him. And that's why Jesus said in the upper room, do this in remembrance of me. Because he knows how much we struggle to remember the basic truth of the gospel, the good news, and how much in our Christian living we start to revert to this subtle mindset where we start to think and live and behave as though the, the Christian life is actually bad news. And that we live constantly under the threat of judgment or the threat of punishment rather than rest in Christ. And so, in the most visible and tangible way, he gives to his church the bread and the cup to represent his very own flesh and blood given to, uh, to us. It is the promise of the gospel in 3D for us to see and to hold and touch and taste and feel, to engage all five senses so that he might ingrain the gospel into our minds for our assurance, for our reassurance, over and over again and as we take the bread and the cup regularly jesus is directing our eyes away from ourselves and pointing us to the cross and that as we look to the cross we might remember what holy love with which he suffered for us that there on the cross our lord jesus received all of god's holy anger and judgment him distancing himself from sin the sensation of god's rightful abandonment jesus endured it all all of our fears our dread was unleashed upon him and he did that so that we might be free from the fear of punishment and anger the fear of resentment from god and live in the security and the assurance of His delight in us. And that that would be what fuels our holy living, to know that we are His children with whom He is well pleased, because we are one with Christ, His Son with whom He is well pleased. You see, the Lord's Supper is the visible sermon of Jesus' words do not be afraid peace be with you my peace i give to you don't revert to the mode of legalism as though you must constantly earn your peace with god on a daily basis no because you have been justified by faith in me you have perfect peace with god romans 5 1 and this is why this sacrament is in the form of a meal and if, you, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that even amongst people, the enacting of a covenant between parties would be followed by a meal and a feast. And for instance, in Genesis chapter 26, when Isaac had settled down in the land of Gerar, uh, eventually Abimelech was the king of Gerar. He told Isaac to leave. And the reason he did that was because Uh, Abimelech was intimidated by Isaac because he could tell that God Almighty was with Isaac and he sensed divine power and protection over him. And so Abimelech got intimidated because he thought, oh my goodness, what if Isaac uses this divine power against me? And so he asked him to leave, kind of chased him out of the the land. But long story short, after Isaac left, Abimelech went to Isaac to essentially call truce and say, hey man, no hard feelings, just want to make sure there's no... no retribution, no bad blood between us. And listen to what Abimelech says to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 28. Chapter 26, verse 28, he says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And so we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done anything to you, but nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. And it says, so Isaac made them a feast and they ate and drank. Look, in the Bible, a meal is not just eating food. I mean, my goodness, for us, uh, today, I mean, a meal is, you, you, you go to McDonald's and you tell the cashier, can I get a Big Mac? And the cashier says, would you like to add fries and a drink and make it a meal? I mean, that's all it is for us. It's just food and eating it because we're hungry. No, no, it's more than that in the Bible. That the meal was the ultimate sign, the, the signature of fellowship and peace between two parties. That there is no enmity, no harm, no bad blood between them. That there is now a harmonious relationship between them. And it is guaranteed by the oath that they swore. That's the meal of fellowship. A joyous feast of eating and drinking and being filled in each other's presence. That is the spirit of the Lord's Supper. That by this meal, He shares with His gathered church. He, what, what Jesus is doing is, is reaffirming and re-signing the check. There is peace with God. And no one can enjoy a meal of fellowship in the presence of God unless he is at perfect peace with God, unless he is welcomed by God, unless he is beloved by God, unless he is pleasing to God. And so what does that tell you then, church? That Jesus regularly calls his people to gather around the table and to take the bread and the cup. He is telling us that there is peace, unchanging The Lord's Supper is the sign of gospel reassurance. If baptism is like a wedding ring or a wedding ceremony, then the Lord's Supper is the renewal of vows. Not because God has to renew them on His part. He's never changed. But we change all the time, don't we? We stumble and we fall. Our commitment to Christ, our devotion... It is fickle. It is weak. Our love for Christ is not as steadfast as we would like it to be. But His is steadfast. Steadfast love. And so it is for our reassurance that Christ renews and reaffirms His steadfast love, His never-failing commitment to His inseparable union with His people. And by the way, this is why you must be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. They're both visible signs and there's an order and a logic to them. You can't visibly renew the covenant if you haven't visibly entered the covenant. Now you may have done so spiritually by faith and amen, that's what salvation is. It's not something outward, but it's inward in the soul. And so if you have have not been baptized, but you are a Christian, you have truly repented of sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then by faith, you do belong to Christ. You are united to him. You're fully a member of his body. You're not some second class citizen, although you need to get baptized ASAP because Jesus commanded it. And so yes, baptism doesn't save you. The Lord's Supper doesn't save you. These are but outward signs of what must be an inward reality. But we're talking about outward signs. How can someone partake in the outward sign of covenant renewal if they haven't partaken in the outward sign of covenant entrance? That's like a couple having a vow renewal ceremony when they never had a wedding ceremony to begin with, where they exchanged vows. It doesn't make sense. It's, It's illogical. That's why in the Old Testament, a man had to be circumcised before being able to eat the Passover meal because it's the sign of fellowship and belonging to God. And in the New Testament, we see clearly that Christ is our Passover lamb. And so the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is the visible sign of the ultimate Passover. And for all who are in Christ, God has completely and fully passed over us in judgment. And we are totally free from the burden and condemnation of the law. But do you see, church, why the sacraments are such gifts of grace to us? They are meant to anchor our souls in the love of God in Christ Jesus. And they are given to us to teach us the rhythms of grace in our lives. This is why, Here at NBC, we we take the Lord's Supper regularly, not just occasionally, because we need the regular nourishment of being reminded of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that is our livelihood as believers. That the grace that has saved us is the grace that must and will sustain us until the end. Christian, consider these two sacraments as a whole. The fact that God gave us these two interrelated signs what does that teach you about the gospel of his grace he he is teaching us he wants us to know and to believe that his grace is sufficient from beginning to the end that he perseveres us to the end God's work of salvation is not just Him enacting and creating your new birth as as miraculous and amazing as that is, but it's also Him intimately sustaining your new life in Christ for all of your days. It's Christ Himself feeding you, nurturing you, comforting you, helping you in your weakness, restoring you over and over and over again, and doing so happily by the power of the gospel that He accomplished for us. And that's why we say if you've had the worst week as a Christian, that's when you most need to take the Lord's Supper. To be reminded of the gospel again. If you've fallen into sin, come to the table. Bring and confess your sin and be restored by the gospel which you have believed already. That's the Lord's Supper. It's not a reward for the spiritually strong but it is food for the spiritual weak. And the truth is, we are all spiritually weak. That's what God sees and knows us to be as we really are. The sacraments are for the weak, the weary, the struggling, the doubting, because it has never been and will, ne- and will never be about your greatness and your strength. But it has always been and will always be about His covenant faithfulness and the power of His grace to save us and to keep us into the end. Christian, only when you believe in the power of God's grace in you, then you will be empowered by His grace to live in holiness, to hate sin, to genuinely fight against it, and to walk in joyful obedience to the one whom you see through the revelation of His grace one whom you see as so lovely and kind and altogether worthy of your worship you must remember that there's no power in you in your flesh apart from christ but but the power of god's spirit is found in us taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them on christ in whom we live and move and breathe This is the gospel. And may God seal these truths unto our hearts. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we praise you for your faithfulness, for your steadfast and unchanging love to us in Christ. Oh Lord, help us to glorify you by channeling all of our focus and trust and rest and and dependence on your sufficiency. And we ask that as we now prepare to take the bread and the cup that you would use these ordinary elements for the extraordinary supernatural means of reaffirming the gospel that we have believed, but that we need to believe more with greater conviction and greater peace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.